following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Boys and girls, we have a big word today in the bulletin called eschatology. Now, that's a word that I want you to understand because it describes a very important series of truths that God reveals in the Bible. It's made up of two words, eschaton and ology. And so like theology or Christology, it is the study of the eschaton. And eschaton means the end or in theology, the last days. So eschatology refers primarily to the end times, the events around the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the reality of heaven and hell for all eternity. But although eschatology in one sense points us to the end of the age, we also in our lives now as Christians live in the reality of eschatology because we have already begun to participate in eternal life. We're in union with Christ. We're seated with him in the heavenly places. And John chapter 3 tells us that even today, the unbelievers are under God's condemnation. And so there is a reality of eschatology in our lives. And this is a reality that Job is expressing here in chapter 27. Now we have in chapter 27, although it comes right on the previous speech of Job in chapter 26, and I'll show you more fully in a moment, but we have here a major transition in the development of uh, what is being recorded for us in the book of Job. In chapter 26, Job answers Bildad, who in self-righteousness condemns Job for hypocrisy by setting forth the sovereign dominion and transcendence of God. But we saw that he did it in such a way that he offers no hope whatsoever. He leaves everyone without any hope. So Job answers him in chapter 26, first by rebuking him and showing him that he has actually misapplied the majesty of God. And then Job opens up for us the majesty of God by looking at heaven and hell and all the starry firmament and the rain and the land, all manifesting God's sovereignty, his power, his goodness, his glory, so that we then may know him and walk with him, and love him. Now, as you look at verse 1 of chapter 27, you see that implied here is a pause. Don't see it as well in the English, but if you look in your footnote, then Job continued, it is again he took up. And most writers, and I agree with them, say that there was a pause here. Job has finished his response to Bildad. So there's one more friend to speak, that's Zophar. And so Job pauses for a moment. Perhaps he looks over at Zophar. But Zophar and Eliphaz and Bildad have nothing left to say. Job has soundly refuted their arguments that because he's suffering severely, he must be a wicked man. He's demonstrated that we cannot judge a person's spiritual state by what's happening to them in this life. And he has once again pointed here to the beauty and glory of a sovereign God. So it's when Zophar does not answer 
that Job now begins a new section of our book. Chapters 27 and 28 are one long speech, and chapters 29 to 31, a second speech. In a minute, I'll show you how they're introduced so we know that we've got a major change that's taking place here. But what Job is doing now is, in this context of the present reality that believers can suffer grievously and the wicked can pretty much get through life scot-free, he directs our attention to the end of the age, how we should then live now in the light of eschatology. That's why I call it Job's eschatology. And the question I want each of you to ask, and I hope that we will answer it in the sermon, is how are you living in light of eschatology? How are you living in light of the truths of heaven and hell? Now, what I want to show you here is that the believer, God wants the believer to have confidence of his eternal estate and confidence of the certainty and nature of the judgment of the wicked. Confidence of your eternal estate, confidence, the certainty and nature of the judgment of the wicked. So we're going to consider three things, the confidence of the believer, the certainty of judgment, and then the nature of judgment. We begin with Job's confidence. The confidence of the believer, he expresses then in verses 1 through 6. Now, as I mentioned, we have a major shift here that's not picked up in the English. And, and by the way, this is why our confession says that at the end of the day, we want to be able to appeal to the original languages. That's why we want you men who are preparing for ministry to understand um, the, the original languages, because what we have literally is that Job took up his discourse, he took up his parable. And the word parable, it's the same word that Solomon uses uh, for his uh, parables uh, in Proverbs. And the, and the word parable refers to a weighty, significant discourse uh, with, of serious matters. And this introduces this speech, which includes chapter 28, so here Job's eschatology, chapter 28, God's wisdom. And he takes the same formula again in chapter 29 as he goes through the end of his life and one more time exonerates himself and sets out his case. And that's also a parable, 29 to 31. So we have Job's last two speeches. And here we begin with his eschatology and with the confidence of the believer. Now, you'll notice in verse 2 that Job is taken an oath. As God lives, he says, which is the formal way of, of taking uh, an oath. Now, some of you might think that oath-taking is wrong, but we just, what? Saying in Psalm 95 and read in Hebrews chapter 3 that God took an oath. Now, an oath, as we read in the Westminster Confession, is... Part of religious worship, wherein upon just occasion, the person swearing solemnly calls God to witness that he asserts or promises and to judge him according to what he asserts or promises and to judge him according to the truth or falsehood of what he has sworn. And God takes oaths. Christ Jesus took an oath. The Apostle Paul took oaths. We find people in the Bible taking oaths. Oaths are not forbidden in the Sermon on the Mount or by James, but wrong oaths. Uh, uh, trickery oaths, sophistry oaths, 
But proper oaths, for proper reasons as spelled out here, are ordained by God as acts of worship. And Job now, because of the state that he's in, because he's being judged by these men as a wicked man, calls upon God as the witness of his confession and confidence. Now he calls upon him, as almost so many of the oaths do, as the living God. And I imagine that most of you do not pay attention to that epithet, that adjective. The living God. He is the God who is the source of all life. He is the God who says, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. He is himself life, and he is the source of all life. And as a living God, he is the only true God. And so we heard two weeks ago that you know, false gods have eyes. They can't see. They have mouths. They can't speak. The living God, the eternal one, Jehovah, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then he calls him God Almighty, which we know is the particular name of God used in this period of biblical history. But we never just skip over these names of God. It's a constant reminder that he is the God of all power, all sufficiency. He does all that's proper and right. And so he calls upon God, but notice how he describes God, who has taken away my right, verse 2, and the Almighty who has embittered my soul. Now, it seems that Job, once again, overspeaks himself. In fact, Elihu, in chapter 34, I think it is, actually rebukes him, quoting these very words. But understand what he's saying is, it's really a concession. Now, he's wrong. God's not taken away his right. God simply has not yet vindicated him. And yes, he's bitter, but it's not God who embittered his soul. But notice what he's saying is even if, even if this is the work of God who is not now vindicating me, the work of God who has embittered my soul, I still confess him and I still confess my integrity. That's the oath. This is not going to be taken from me. He says, as long as I live. Look at verse 4, or verse 3. As long as life is in me, and the breath of God is in my nostrils. Now, I mentioned last week that I thought that speech, Job reflected some knowledge of the creation account. And here he does as well, because the language he uses is from Genesis 2-7. God made man the dust of ground, and then he breathed into him the breath of life, and he became a living soul. Now, all the creatures were called living souls, but what Adam and we had was this breath of life, which is the spiritual indwelling of God. It is his soul. And so he's really expressing soul here in two ways. Soul, though, as the image bearer of God, as long as my soul, the breath of life is in me, and as long as the breath of God uh, is in my nostrils, this is what I swear. So he's swearing by his own life, by God, throughout his own life, that he will never turn aside from what he now swears to do. So he speaks both what he will not do and what he does do. In verse 4 and 5a, My lips certainly will not speak unjustly, nor will my tongue mutter deceit. Far be it from me that I should declare you right. On that first line, my lips certainly will not speak unjustly. He perhaps has in mind that they've accused him of uh, denying the justice of God. And he's already shown that he's never denied the justice of God. He believes in the justice of God, but once again, now he's swearing he does. I'm never going to speak wrongly of God, but moreover, 
He's never going to speak wrongly of himself. Nor will my tongue mutter deceit. You see, he cannot give in to their accusations that he's an evil man. Behind that, he's hearing Satan tempting him to deny God. To say that uh, he's only a, a, a mercenary. And so he concludes that in 5a, far be it from me. Very uh, strong word. It's kind of like, I think the King James translates it, God forbid. Uh, the Hebrew parallels the Greek and the Gospels that's translated God forbid, but it's uh, let it not be. Uh, that I should, and notice the word here, declare you right, justify you. He says, there's no way I'm going to say anything that gives any credit to what you men have accused me of doing, because that would be deceitful. And understand, it is important that you defend your integrity. Not always, on every occasion, but when it's a matter of the honor of God or or a reputation of the church, we must never allow the deceitful ones to speak. And we must not allow them to speak against others as well. We have a responsibility to defend the name of brothers and sisters and never justify by our silence accusations against the godly, accusations that we know are wrong or accusations that uh, are not uh, proven. Lately, we have one of these accusations floating around against a very dear brother. Uh, but it's, uh, it denies the biblical requirement of two or three witnesses, and nobody's to take up a single charge against the elder of the gospel. And it should not be given assent to. We have a responsibility then not to listen to it, and when possible to say, unless you've got another witness, you should not be speaking this way whatsoever. So we do not allow the deceit of slander. We do not justify it, the action. But this moves to the positive. He says three things. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. Now, the word integrity here is in the family of words that is used in chapter 1 and chapter 2 when God says that Job is a blameless man. This word integrity is from that same family, blameless man of integrity, a righteous man who fears God and turns away from evil. That's God's testimony. And Job is saying, not only will I not allow the deceit, I assert that never, ever shall anyone um, take away my integrity from me, nor will I then deny that I walk with a blameless heart. Now remember, a blameless heart is not a sinless heart. It is a sincere heart. It's not a hypocritical heart. It's the heart that wants to please and serve the Lord. Yes, redeemed sinners should be able to be blameless. And Job said that I am in no way going to allow you to strip my integrity from me. And then he says, in fact, I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. Now, by righteousness, that is the word upright in Genesis uh, in Job 1, 1 and 2, 3. And it simply means that he has lived his life according to the law of God. Now, he's going to demonstrate that uh, in uh, chapters uh, 30 and, and 31. Uh, but what he's saying is, is that I have ordered my life by God's law as, as he knew God's law in those days. And uh, again, not saying he was sinless because when he broke the law, he confessed his sin and his, that was pardoned. 
But as a man who was blameless, who had a sincere heart, then he could say, I have walked in the way of the Lord. And I will allow no one then to strip that from me. Now, this is an oath before God. Do you understand what he's saying here? This was his confidence given to him by the Holy Spirit. And notice how he concludes it then. My heart does not reproach any of my days. Heart stands here for conscience. And Job is saying, I look back at my life and I have lived with a pure conscience. Now remember, I pointed out that a pure conscience is not a sinless person. The way you maintain a pure conscience is when you sin, you confess your sin to God. You confess your sin uh, to the person against whom you sin or before whom you sin. And you maintain a pure conscience. Repentance and confession of sin keeps the conscience pure and clean. So Job is saying, I have lived my entire life with a consciousness of my integrity. Let me ask you a very serious question. As you sit here today, can you say this? Maybe not about the past, but in your recent walk as a Christian. Can you say with Job, uh, this declaration before God, my heart does not reproach any of my days. You see, here is the call for us, dear friends, to live our Christian life with integrity. It's very important. To avoid secret sins. Sins that we do in secret, children. God's omniscient, He sees all things. Sins that we simply have in our minds and don't dare act on them. Sins that we've not dealt with from our past. You see, we must put away our secret sins. We must not allow any entrance of secret sin so that we can then say that my soul bears witness. My soul does not reproach any of my days. May this indeed be your desire. But in Christ Jesus, the reality of who you are. And then I want you to see how that relates then to ultimately what Job is saying, that is, I have assurance of my salvation. Here's where eternity enters into his present life. He knows that he is a sinner saved by grace, but the evidence of that is that he's been walking uh, in grace, by grace, in the holiness of God's law. And thus, he knew. He knew that he belonged to God, regardless of what even God was doing to him. Regardless of what the enemies were saying about him, he knew. And beloved, God wants you to have this same assurance of salvation. This is where the eschaton enters now your present life. And remember how our confession defines assurance, yet such as truly believe the Lord Jesus and love him in, love him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience. There's the relationship. Uh, may certainly in this life be assured that they are in a state of grace and may rejoice in that hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. Do you have that assurance today? Now, it's God's will for you to have that assurance. Now, if you've lived a sloppy Christian life, you shouldn't have assurance. But now I've shown you how to deal with that. But... 
Remember, the confession says we have three grounds for assurance, the promises of God. And that's what Job's banking on here, you see. Regardless of what God is doing, he knew God's promises. And then the evidences of our life, and that's what he's swearing. And then the testament of the Holy Spirit that will take and point to what he's doing in our lives. And that's how you seek assurance. You believe the promises, you listen to the Spirit speaking to you by what he's doing in your life. If you wrestle with assurance, then seek it from God. It's his will. It's his will that you have assurance. And uh, uh, seek him urgently until he gives you the same confidence that, that Job has here. So this is the confidence of the believer. This is where eschatology enters your present existence. Well, next, Job goes on to speak of the certainty of judgment. He's been accused of denying the justice of God, but in 7 to 12, he asserts clearly the justice of God. He begins with an imprecation. That means calling now not an oath, but a curse on the wicked. Verse 7, may my enemy be as the wicked and my opponent as the unjust. Job expresses his vehemence now against all wickedness and all wicked people by saying, what I'm about to describe, it's my desire, this comes upon everyone who is my enemy. Now, as as we think about these prayers of imprecation, you have to understand who the enemy is. Enemy is not the neighbor who keeps you up at night or who fiddles with something in your yard or parks in your parking space or something like that. No, uh, the enemy is the enemy of God. The only enemy about which you may pray imprecation is one who is God's enemy. And see, that's what Job is expressing here, that um, as he spells out the nature of these people, his enemies, his opponents, are the wicked. Let them have then the lot of the wicked. Now, he's speaking generally about the wicked. So he's, he's demonstrating he's been accused of covering for the wicked. No, you know, it's my desire that this is what happens to all wicked people. But it might be a shot across the bow as well uh, for the three counselors because they're acting wickedly. They're not speaking for God. And Job's actually warning them what could happen to them if they persist in their self-righteous condemnations. A very important warning to us about slander and gossip. Now, at the end, they are pardoned. But this is the danger of anyone who uh, carries tales and does not properly deal with that by repentance. And so it's an imprecation. And Job says with respect to them that in the first case, in verse 8, they're the situation is actually hopeless. What is the hope of the godless when he's cut off, when God requires his life? There's no hope. At the end of the day, when the wicked man dies, he dies without hope. This is repeated so often in the Gospels. and In Matthew 7, 21 and 23, Christ says, Depart from me, I never knew you. Cast them out. Our Savior says, um, in, in Mark 8, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For God declares to the rich fool in Luke 12, 20, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. 
If you lead a wicked life, at the end of a wicked life, there's no hope and there's no light. There's only eternal damnation. And so he goes on to say there's no deliverance. In verse 9, will God hear his cry when distress comes upon him? So the wicked is approaching death. He's now crying out uh, for deliverance from God. But you see, he had hardened his heart. And God said, today is the day of uh, salvation. So that our passage in Hebrews applies uh, Psalm 95, 7 uh, to 11 uh, to uh, those who've hardened their hearts in this life. And they approach the end of life and suddenly, well, they're like the people described in the Bible. They want the mountain to fall on them and hide them from the wrath of God. But there is no hiding from the wrath of God. There is no deliverance at this point. You live your life in sin. You have no hope of deliverance at that point of death. Remember, the psalmist confessed that if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord does not hear my prayers. He does not hear the prayers of the hypocrites. Time and again, the children of Israel would call out for deliverance, and God would give them some temporal deliverance. But the psalmist says in Psalm 78 that their cry was hypocritical. It was hypocritical. And that's always the cry of the one who has no intention of forsaking sin, just wanting to get out of a hard fix in which one finds himself. And then he gives the, the ground of this in verse 10. He puts it in the form of two questions. Will he take delight in the Almighty? Will he call on God at all times? I hope you can see what he's saying here. The reason the case is hopeless and there's no deliverance He doesn't delight in God. He only wants God as the insurance policy or the police officer to come along because now I'm in trouble. That's what the question is showing us. He doesn't take delight in God Almighty. His life's not a life that is caught up in in rejoicing in the beauty and the sovereignty and the splendor of God. He doesn't call on God at all times. Like the children of Israel, he calls on God when he's in trouble. And thus God does not hear. God cuts off. And God does not deliver. So you see how Job is unfolding here the certainty of judgment of the wicked by this imprecation. This is what I want to happen to all who are wicked, to all who are my enemies. And he comes into his conclusion where he basically addresses his friends now in verses 11 and 12 about the certainty. I will instruct you in the power of God, literally in the hand of God. And it's not just the the power of God abstractly, but the power of God acting. That's what the hand of God is. And what is with the Almighty? What is about him? What is it about God being Almighty that um, will cause him to execute perfect justice. Now, I'm sure these men did not want to be instructed by Job. But they needed to hear what he was having to say. And he appeals to their conscience. He says, behold, now pay attention, all of you have seen it. And this, is, this is part of what we try to work out. It's called experimental preaching. To preach to the conscience, to preach to the experience. And so Job enforces his, his arguments that he's been given to them with the fact, and in your conscience, you know what I'm saying is right. 
You cannot answer these arguments about God's justice, about the suffering of the righteous in this life and the sparing of the wicked at times in this life. You know it yourself. Your conscience bears testimony, so then why do you keep acting foolishly? Why do you persist in this vanity? And then again, it's a warning, because if they persist in this, they'll be also be under the certainty of God's judgment. And that is true of every one of us who persists in a way of wickedness and refuses to come to God in Christ Jesus in the way that he has appointed. This brings us then, we've seen the confidence of the believer and the certainty of judgment. Now, Job gives us a very graphic description of the nature of what we're going to call God's retributive justice, the justice that God exercises against the wicked. Again, a summary statement in verse 13. This is the portion of a wicked man from God and the inheritance which tyrants receive from the Almighty. The inheritance is that which belongs to a person. It's inviolable. It cannot be taken away. That's what is meant then by portion. So what is the inheritance? What is the portion? What is the lot of the wicked? Described here both as a wicked, unrighteous man, but notice the word tyrant. And this takes us back to Job's uh, description of the wicked and oppressing the poor and, and murdering and stealing and trampling underfoot and depriving the widow and the orphan of their rights. These are tyrants. These are the giants of the earth. But they all have one inheritance, Job says. It comes from God Almighty. Just as he's testified, he's going to instruct them in the hand of God. He now says this is the portion of God Almighty. And then he lists four curses that make up God's justice against the wicked. In verses 14 and 15, they are cursed in their family. Though his sons are many, they're destined for the sword. His descendants will not be satisfied with bread. The survivors will be buried because of the plague, and the widows will not be able to weep. Now, earlier, Job had pushed back and said, well, now, don't just tell me that God let them go. He's going to punish their children. Now, he's not contradicting that because he recognizes that God does punish the children for the parents' sin. But notice he's not stopping with one generation here. See, your sons are many and descendants. These are future generations, survivors. And so we just read in the law that the curse of God is unto third and fourth generation of those who hate him. And that's a very important biblical reality. That God doesn't punish a son for the sins of his father, but rather he gives children over to the sins of their father and punishes them. And Job is saying that the sins of the wicked will be carried over in the descendants of the wicked, and they can expect then four things from God in their descendants. In the first... Many will be slain by the sword, either righteously by the magistrate or by enemies. Next, they'll go through famine in 14b. They'll not be satisfied with bread. Third, they'll be buried because of the plague. And we get these covenant curses coming through here. And then fourth, their widows will not be able to weep. Either there's no time to weep and they've run out of tears, or in fact, there's no survivors left even to mourn for those who were there. And so God's going to exercise retributive justice in our families. 
It's a very solemn warning, particularly in the second commandment. It's tied to correct worship. And that should be a very important uh, lesson for us. But we also don't forget how that commandment ends. And to a thousand generations, God's covenant love. That's God's great work. And so, yes, he punishes in the children, but he does intercede with grace. He breaks the line of the curse, and he comes in mercy. But this is the punishment of the wicked, not just on themselves, but on their descendants. Second, it is uh, the, the loss of their riches and their estates, 16 through 20. Though he piles up silver like dust, prepares garments as plentiful as the clay, he may prepare it, but the just will wear it, and the innocent will divide the silver. He's built his house, it's like a, a moth, better than a spider's web, or as a hut which the watchman has made. He lies down rich, but never again he opens his eyes, and it is no longer. Here, he said, yes, they can be very wealthy in this life. The tyrants who rob and steal and extort. So they might even pile up silver so it's as plentiful as dust. And they'll have all these fancy garments that will be um, as much as uh, clay or, or, or clay pots. They'll have great wealth. But notice in verse 17, he may prepare it, but the just will wear it, the garment. And we get an inversion here. It's called a chiasm. And the innocent will divide the silver. So he collects it, he wears it, but he loses it. And the righteous become the heirs of that which the wicked man uh, amassed. And so in Proverbs 13, 22, the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. Further, he writes in Ecclesiastes, for to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he's given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to the one who is good in God's sight. So what happens? The innocent, the innocent will wear the garments and divide the spoils. But notice, the innocent will divide the spoils. He's not hoarding this wealth. The tyrant hoarded it all for himself. But the innocent man now takes that which he's inherited, gotten the spoils of Egypt, and he shares it then. And so as Solomon says, he's given the task of gathering, collecting, so he may give it to the one who is good in God's sight. Now, Matthew Henry has a very quaint proverb here. Money is like manure, good for nothing if it be not spread. And he's just commenting on the fact that when we've been given material possessions by God, they do no good unless we're actually using them for God's glory. He goes on to say that uh, their estates, these great mansions they built, and probably, like Job, these three friends, very wealthy, would live in, in beautiful, ornate houses. They're going to be like a, uh, really the Hebrew is a moth. Like you know, the moth's garment is quickly gone, but earlier they talked about a moth. You know, you pick him out, and you, one second between your fingers, he's gone. Their house is no more stable than a moth. Or oh, I love this, the, uh, the watchman's hut. So there are these temporary huts put in the field. and They weren't built for permanence, but they're there for the watchman to watch over the sheep or over the crops. And that's what's going to happen to these great estates. And can you imagine the Biltmore being like a moth? 
are like a, a hut in a field. That's the analogy. The wicked, the estates of the wicked will be destroyed. In fact, he lies down rich, but never again. He opens his eyes, and it's no longer. He goes to bed at night, and he's got all of this. He wakes up in the morning. There's nothing left. Proverbs talks about wealth flying away. When you set your eyes on it, it's gone, for wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. And this might actually be interpreted in terms of death. He lies down rich, but it's not gathered, is what the Hebrew says. He opens his eyes, it's no longer. He said, there's nothing left, is the figure of speech. Which brings us then to the third curse. So we've seen it's in his children, it's in his estate, and then it's in death itself. Uh, verses 20 and 21. Terrors overtake him like a flood. A tempest steals him away in the night. The east wind carries him away. He's gone, for it whirls him away from his place. Death now comes like a storm, like a flood of water, sweeping away everything that is before it. Like a, a, a stormy tempest, the east wind was the hot, stormy wind that destroyed uh, all that was uh, in front of it, blowing the detritus, the debris away. And that was the, the end of life for the wicked. Now, earlier, Job had said that they lie down in peace and go to sleep. But in the conscience, you see, in the conscience, death is this terror that is sweeping them away. They can't resist it. I was reading in the journal this week about all this attempt now for these long-life medical things. Everybody needs to make their life longer. But you can make it as long as you want. You're still going to die until Christ returns. And that is the reality. And death is going to sweep away everyone before it. It's going to sweep the wicked away in judgment. You see the language of judgment that's in the very forceful terms Terror overtakes him like a flood. Tempest steals him away in the night. The east wind carries him away. It whirls him away from his place. Reality of death. A cursed death on all the wicked. This brings us then to the second death, the final death, the hell itself, in verses 22 and 23. For it, and I take it here as God, not the east wind, will hurl at him without sparing and he will surely try to flee from his power. Men will clap their hands at him and will hiss at him from and will hiss him from his place. It's appointed the men wants to die, and after that, the judgment. This terrible, awful judgment of God that accompanies all at death, but the wicked in particular. And that those who see, and particularly the righteous, will clap their hands and hiss him from his place and rejoice in a proper way in the retributive justice of God. And in eternity we will do that as well. But listen to what David said about Doeg, who killed all the priests. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch you up and tear you away from your tent, uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous will see and fear and will laugh at him, saying, Behold the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and was strong in his evil desires. That, you see, is, is the final lot of the wicked. The final 
eternal retributive justice of God. And so what Job is doing here is he thinks about eternity. He thinks about the reality of judgment and curses and hell. He's coming back now to the issues that are before him. His, his confidence in his own estate, the certainty of judgment and its nature, enables him now to come back to the issue. I don't know why I'm suffering, but I'm not suffering under the curse of God because I participate in eternal life. I don't know why the wicked don't always suffer in this life, but I do know that the curse of God hangs like democracy's sword over their head. And they will be destroyed. Curse some in this life, but certainly forever. So I hope you can better answer the question, what does eschatology have to do with your life today? How does God instruct you from Job's eschatology? One thing is, God wants you, in light of who you are in Christ Jesus, to live with integrity and confidence. He does not want you living in fear. He wants you to live in the reality that you are a child of God, purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ. Your inheritance is not the inheritance of the wicked. It's the inheritance of God's children. And God is your father, Christ is your brother. You live by the Spirit who is in you. And thus you can walk in integrity. You can say with Job that um, no one's going to snatch your integrity or your righteousness from you because your conscience bears witness to you of all your days. And thus you can walk with confidence, my friend, as you rest in Christ. That's what the reality of eternity should do for you. Second, the lesson that, one of the primary lessons in this book, don't judge people's spiritual condition or your own by what's happening to you, both positively or negatively. Perhaps in witnessing, you've come across the person or maybe someone in your family says, my life's so good, I know that God's not upset with me. You see, that's, that's not true at all, is it? Because God's wise and powerful and in exercise of his judgment. And you can take no hope about your eternal state because life's hunky-dory. Because if you're doing that, you're going to die and go straight to hell. On the other hand, you don't judge the estate of others or yourself negatively because you're suffering. That's what Satan would want. He would want you to think that God must be really angry with you and you must really be a bad person because of these trials in your life. No, when we have trials, we are to search our hearts, but when our conscience bears witness that, that this is not a punishment of God, we simply acquiesce and know that we're not wicked and God is not displeased with us because we're suffering. Third, boldly pray in precatory psalms, as we think about the plight, as we do so often in the pulpit and in our prayer meeting, of the persecuted, as we did this morning with respect to North Korea and China. These are God's enemies. And they live under the curse of God in light of eternity. And because of that, yes, we would like to see their conversion. But we will pray for their destruction as the souls under the altar in Revelation 6 do. Vindicate our blood. We must pray boldly for that because we live in the light of eternity.
And then fourth, probably the most uncomfortable, we need to meditate a good bit more on hell than we do. Yes, we're to think most about heaven, meditate there, that's our destination, our treasure, but we need to think about God's justice, what hell reveals about the holiness of God and even the goodness of God. I read Flavel this week, and he said that God's justice is an aspect of his goodness because he's good to himself. He's good to his own honor. And so, yes, it's a reality. It needs to be much more reality in our preaching, in the evangelical Reformed church today, in our interacting with people around us, in a sobering reality that this is what's going to happen to those outside of Christ. It's what would happen to you and me if Christ had not satisfied hell for us. Oh, blessed be the name of God. Because when you think about hell, then you all the more rejoice in the beauty of the work of Christ Jesus and call others in to escape that coming wrath, to, to come and rest, to rest in Jesus for salvation. Let us pray. Oh, holy and glorious God, we do thank you for uh, your mercy to us in Christ. We thank you, Lord, that um, the eschaton has entered our lives now, that we live in the reality and light of, of who and what we are in Christ. And we thank you we can have this confidence and live with the integrity that Job expresses and that we can also live in the reality, Lord, that uh, you're just and you deal with us justly and righteously and good. And we can confidently pray, Lord, that at some point you're going to bring retributive justice against the enemies of you and your church. And we bless your name that you've delivered us, Lord, from the gaping jaws of hell. Let us live in great, joyful thanksgiving. For Christ's sake, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.